Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Melanie Jolie heads to the United States ahead of a meeting between the Prime Minister and American and Mexican presidents. The vision that we will have at Global Affairs is one that takes into account that very strategic work that Canada is doing across the world. Is Aaron O'Toole sending a message to vaccination critics with his shadow cabinet? I've been very clear for many weeks that when Parliament returns, uh, all members of our, our caucus, MPs and senators, will respect and follow the rules here on Parliament Hill. Our shadow ministers will be ready on day one to be here in the House. And what's next for the Green Party now that Annamie Paul has stepped down. The party is still going through or was going through this membership review process where they were asking members whether or not they supported enemy Paul to continue her term as leader. And the result that that vote was supposed to end on November 25th. So I suppose that those results may never come in. It's Friday, November 12th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Toronto Star national columnist Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is in the United States today, meeting with her counterpart, the Secretary of State. And this is in preparation for the summit that will feature the leaders of all three major countries in North America, Mexico, Canada and the United States. So what do you expect from this meeting today and and the planning for this summit? Yeah, so um, she's meeting with the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. She actually, he was her first phone call um, after being appointed foreign affairs minister. Uh, He speaks French fluently, and they seem to have um, kicked off a friendly relationship. Uh, My colleague, Susan Delacourt, who's on your show, um, spoke to Melanie Julie about that. So uh, perhaps it's a good and, I would say, safe (laughs) <laughs> bet as a as a first foreign visit. Um, this will actually be the Prime Minister's first visit to Washington since President Biden has been elected. Isn't that crazy to think that? Yeah. Um, so uh, that's obviously happening next week. Um, I know we were just chatting. You don't like the term three amigos. I don't know why <laughs> we use that, but um, it, it's going to be a jam-packed agenda. There's lots clearly Canada wants to talk about from uh, the protectionist policies uh, that the Biden administration is following, especially the threat to um, the, what was hope, what I guess Canadians were hoping would be the booming electric vehicle uh, production uh, and market in Canada. Um, if the U.S. goes ahead with this credit only for cars that are produced in the U.S., that would be a, a big blow to um Canadian jobs here, and lines five, and we still have softwood lumber to talk about. Um, but the Mexicans also have lots of things that they want to talk about with the U.S. and the U.S. has lots of stuff they want to talk about with the Mexicans. So, um, you know, always if you're if you're more partners at the table, there may be less action on the topics that you would like to see done. We'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, let's turn to matters closer to home. And, and we're just over a week away from the resumption of Parliament. And uh, and since the election, it feels like Aaron O'Toole has been dealing within his own caucus with one major issue, and that is 
where members of the caucus stand on mandatory vaccination, how many of them have actually been vaccinated. There have been critics of mandatory vaccination speaking out. There was even the talk of there being this kind of breakaway caucus uh, that would still be part of the Conservative Party, but would would meet regularly on this kind of issue, the Civil Liberties Caucus. Um, and this week, Aaron O'Toole uh, established, uh, basically gave jobs to a bunch of people within the Conservative Caucus, both a, a, a shadow cabinet and then a, a, another shadow cabinet of deputy critics, basically. So lots of people got jobs. It's... Um, uh, there's, there's no additional pay that goes with any of that, I don't think. So uh, it's not expensive, but it is extensive. Um, and noticeably absent were the people who had been speaking out about this issue, right? Yeah, I mean, some so some jobs do come with titles, like the opposition house leader, for example, gets the title, but, but uh, positions that are not official, so most of the critic roles do not, or actually yeah. the journalists call them critic roles, the... Um, the conservatives like to call it shadow ministers, or as you said, deputy shadow ministers. I think, you know, what was striking to me, Mark, was you know, there's 119 conservatives elected to House Commons. There are at least 80 now that have official job titles, from Aaron O'Toole down to the deputy shadow cabinet minister for, you know, tourism. And that's not including the, you know, in that about 39 left over, uh, you know, the caucus chair, Scott Reed, and uh, the conservative MPs who will end up chairing opposition-led committees like government ops and ethics, and who's going to be vice chairs of most of the other committees. So um, it's almost like the question is not so much who's in the circle, but who's been left out of the circle. And as you rightly point out, um, a lot of the people who've spoken out um, against vaccine mandates, who've cast doubt about the science, um, who have um, embarrassed the party at different times have been left out. So, um, for example, I think most notable was Leslin Lewis, who was the runner-up, um, or the third runner-up uh, in the leadership race. Uh, she had a prominent role in the shadow cabinet last time. She's been completely left out. Marilyn Gladue, who was in the news this week, has been left out. Um, then people who have embarrassed the party in the past, Michael Cooper. Um, you remember he had raised, uh, he'd quoted from the uh, the shooter in Christchurch. Do you remember the manifesto? Right. And he'd been you know, so there's Cheryl um, Gallant has been left out, though she's usually left out. Um, so there's there's a lot of people who um, Dean Allison who've not come forward with their um, with their vaccinate. Well, Dean Allison, we know he has a medical exemption, but many who have not come forward and said that they're doubly vaccinated um, may have been left out because they did not come for- forward with their vaccination status. I mean. Um, Aaron O'Toole has consistently said he's not asked his caucus whether or not they're vaccinated, but that his shadow cabinet would be in the House. So clearly he must have based his decision on their own statements. Um, it, it is interesting. There's certainly uh, the message, you know, from Conservative MPs, their takeaway is that a lot of new people, people who were just elected in the last campaign, 
uh, have gotten deputy shadow cabinet positions. A lot of the class of 2019 are now in the shadow cabinet. So Aaron O'Toole is surrounding himself with people who may feel like they owe a certain loyalty to him. And a lot of the social conservatives, the pro-lifers and caucus have been left out. Now, mm-hmm. there is overlap between often social conservative views and some of the anti-vaccine rhetoric that we've seen. So I, I'm not sure on which part, but there's some people are clearly uh, getting a message from the social conservative angle of that story. Yeah. And I guess uh, just quickly, the the big question will be, uh, will Aaron O'Toole be able to move on from this when Parliament resumes and 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 shift the focus back to the performance of the government rather than where he stands as leader and, and these and these cracks in the in the caucus over this issue? Right. Yeah, I mean, the big test, frankly, will be um, Monday, not next, not this Monday, but next Monday. Uh, there's been some rumblings that some of the anti-vaccine MPs might show up on Parliament Hill, regardless of the rules. And there's some contingency planning, it seems, or concerns being raised, at least on the Liberal side, that have been raised with the Sergeant-at-Arms. There is a plan that's being laid out in case this happens. Some Conservative MPs are talking about it. Uh, you know, if this actually materializes and people do kind of show up on the Hill demanding to be let in, well, you know, then the story has legs for further days. So that would obviously not be a good thing for Adam Tool. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the future of the Green Party. Um, this week, uh, <laughs> Annamie Paul has officially stepped down as leader and she also... Finally, yes. Yeah. She also quit the party. Um, she's no longer a member of the Green Party. What's next for the Green Party after uh, this really divisive period under her leadership? You know, Mark, I've never seen anything like it. The leader announces they're resigning but remains in place for a month. I'm not sure what made her finally decide uh, to step aside officially. Um, she's not uh, given many media interviews, any actually that I know of, and the Green Party is not responding to messages. There, there are they, the party is still going through or was going through this membership review process where they were asking members whether or not they supported Enemy Paul to continue her term as leader, and the result that that vote was supposed to end on November 25th. So I suppose that those results may never come in. Uh, the party is going to have to move forward with an interim leader. Um, some of the names that have been talked about are Joanne Roberts, who served as interim leader when Elizabeth May stepped down. Um, also, Paul Manley was a choice, was actually Elizabeth May's choice. She has said that she has no interest in being the leader of the party. So um, the the council will have to make a decision about how they're going to go about that. Um, and I think a lot of Green parties are really hoping that they're able to turn the page. I should say, um, Amita Kuttner, um, they are also, they they ran in the last leadership race. Um, they have also kind of put their name forward, but then told uh, at least one newspaper that actually they don't want the job, but uh, they feel like some continuity, uh, continuity has to happen and stability. Um, and so they're offering themselves up for that job as well. So we'll see uh, what's un- what ends up happening. But there, there are people, even if they may not be enthusiastically uh, in favor of uh, running the party for the next little bit, are offering their services up uh, to do that, to kind of steady the ship, because mm. 
it has been an extremely difficult year for the Green Party. Yeah. All right, Althea, we are counting down to when Parliament resumes a week from Monday. Uh, It's going to be very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too, Mark. That's Toronto Star National Columnist Althea Raj. We pause today to reflect upon the service and sacrifice of our troops in battles, conflicts, and missions throughout our military heritage. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Matt Gurney argues, Canada's soldiers are always there for us. The least we could do is be there for them. Gurney writes, We could choose to do better. We have been given every reason to make that choice. Our veterans and Armed Forces members ask only for respect and the opportunity to serve to the best of their ability, knowing they'll be taken care of should tragedy befall them during their careers. This isn't unreasonable and impossible. How many times must our military do right by us before enough Canadians will demand from all the parties that this country do right by them? In the Toronto Star, Thomas Wacom argues, Ontario's government is weirdly unprepared for the pandemic's fourth wave. Wacom writes, In the Yukon, vaccination rates are high, and yet the territory suffers from the highest rate of COVID infection in Canada. Vaccination alone is insufficient without public health measures such as masking and physical distancing added in. All of this should be taken into account as Ontario re-enters the fourth wave. Like the Yukon, Ontario fixates on vaccines. It figures that if it could just convince more people to get vaccinated, its problems would be solved. It ignores almost everything else. At iPolitics, W.A. Bogart argues to fight the opioid crisis, we must decriminalize drugs. Bogart writes... Since 2016, approximately 20,000 people have died from drug overdoses. Decriminalization is only one way to fix this scourge. Other strategies, such as a safe supply for those in the thrall of dependence, are also critical. We should decriminalize without delay, and with our eyes open to all the complexities that will be involved. The problematic use of drugs won't go away anytime soon. We should permit but discourage the removal of sanctions while trying to reduce the damage of any harmful use. Now here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will take part virtually in the meeting of the 2021 Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. He and Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley will then meet with the Premier of Prince Edward Island. Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau will speak with the media at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. International Trade Minister Mary Ng will meet with World Trade Organization partners in Geneva, Switzerland. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne is attending the Global Partnership on Artificial Intelligence Summit in Europe. And in Saskatoon, Northern Affairs Minister Daniel Vandal will announce an investment in the agri-food sector. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, November 12th. Tune into Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.